And guys, we have an amazing opportunity this morning to hear from Dr. Don Byerly. He is a genuine dude. He's the real deal. You've heard it from me. Dr. Don Byerly holds his master's and PhD degrees in life sciences, and he has a master's in New Testament studies. As a research scientist, he was a team member on a scientific expedition to both Antarctic and Arctic polar regions. You think it's cold today? Can't imagine what that was like. And he's published several articles in scientific journals. As an educator and academic dean, Dr. Byerly has been active for 35 years teaching biology, biblical studies, and worldview subjects in the college classroom. He's an author of several books and video series and has conducted training around the world in places such as Marshall Islands, Amsterdam, the Philippines, and throughout India. Don has authored several books and several video series, including the widely circulated Surprised by Faith. He has an unusual ability to analyze technical, scientific, scientific and theological subjects and communicate them in a clear, original, and fascinating way. A former academic dean and vice president for instruction, Dr. Barley currently holds the position as president of Faith Search International in Minnetonka, Minnesota. He and his wife, Vernay, have two married sons and six grandchildren. Could you give Dr. Don Barley a nice, warm, buffalo-free welcome? Good morning. It's good to be with you again. After an introduction like that, you have to be reminded of a rhyme that my students used to use against us professors. Uh, there once was a man named Nesser who came to know lesser and lesser, and finally one fall he knew nothing at all, and they made him a college professor. <laughs> <laughs> I was a professor, uh, academic dean, etc., at uh, St. Paul Bible College, that's the old name, and of course, Crown College today. And I met a few of you already who used to be my students. Uh, I hope I gave you a good grade. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yes, uh, for the last, uh, actually, uh, while I was even at the college, I started a ministry called HIS Ministries, called Home Inspirational Studies, uh, around the Lake Minnetonka area, a home ministry. Gradually grew and developed so that I left the college in 92 and I've been full-time as an evangelist and president traveling around the world proclaiming the gospel. Uh, we are an apologetic ministry. It means we're sorry um, all the time. <laughs> we give reasons in defense of the Christian faith. And in our day today, with all the internet and stuff that people are exposed to, it's never been more needed to be able to give a, a rational explanation for God, for the Bible, for Jesus for faith, and uh, that's what we do, and, and I have some materials out and a table out there. After we're done here and we get through the education hour after that, uh, a, a great topic, choosing to be a bondservant. Most Christians have not heard of the idea, but it comes out of the Old Testament, and, uh, but it's so entirely relevant to us as Christians today, so I hope you can stay for, for that. Um, just a word before I jump in here uh, to the about faith search. Uh, we I have we are six of us who are evangelists who travel around. 
some further than others. Oleg Vos Krasensky is our Russian evangelist, goes to Russia about four or five times a year for three weeks at a time, travels from one end of the Russia to the other, 11 time zones, uh, and, and has been given the incredible opportunity uh, he, has his, he has PhD from Russia institution. He's a, a, a citizen of both the U.S. and Russia. And, and they have invited him to take what we use, some of you who used to know about uh, uh, faith search called the faith study. Today it's called discovery. Uh, an evangelistic presentation of the evidence for uh, the God, the Jesus, and faith, and so forth. Uh, they invited him to take that and customize it for Russian culture, and uh, it's now being taught in the Russian public schools. Can you believe that? That he has now trained about 17,000 secondary teachers in Russia to teach the gospel in their public schools. Uh, it's the same thing, like I say, we use for evangelism here in the, in the United States. Um, and then we have a, a, a Spanish couple down in Texas that uh, travel about, and we have uh, one that does mostly prison and, and troubled youth ministry in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, and, and, and so forth. So we're, we're more diversified than we used to be. It's just not me. Uh, and uh, God has blessed us with, we're celebrating last year 40 years of the ministry, 41 now in 2019, on record, we usually give response forms when I'm out speaking and our other evangelists and ask people to indicate where they stand in regard to Jesus. And we have had 72,000 people over the last 40 years have indicated a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And I praise the Lord because that's the kind of fruit that he wants us to have. Anyway, you can see that I'm still quite young for having served that long, right? Well, let's pray and let's look at the subject for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we have to represent such wonderful truth. And I pray that uh, each one here would be receptive, your Holy Spirit would be the teacher, and that together we would learn this morning more about you that would help us in our walk to please you in every respect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Discovering the fingerprints of God. That's the topic this morning. Without excuse, some of you will immediately know where I got that from in Scripture. The words without excuse. I'll show you in just a few minutes. Revealing the fingerprints of God. Forty years ago, I would have never imagined I needed to talk about the evidence for God. It seemed as if everyone believed there was a God. Today, 25% of the people who used to go to church are called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N. Uh, they don't want any affiliation with the church. They don't want affiliation with any institution of any kind. And for the most part, they question even the existence of God. And so... It seems essential that we take and go back and reestablish what we call the evidence for the fingerprints of God. Go out here and look at outdoor advertising in Minneapolis and you see this. We're all born without belief in gods. Learn how to be a born-again atheist. The Minnesota Atheist Association is very strong in the state. 
uh, whenever I go to University of Minnesota or somewhere like that to speak, I was over at St. Thomas recently, my goodness, the atheists will fill the first two rows and they hassle me all the way through. They don't want to hear it. They're sure it's false. It's not true. And so we have a task. And so I want to share with you, if they were right, they have to be able to explain why 8 out of 10 people in the world believe there's a God. Evidently, 8 out of 10 people are mistaken. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. Well, maybe, or it's the other way around. Maybe 8 out of 10 people got it right. Uh, Why do they believe that there's a higher power? Of course, all those people don't believe in the same God. They're not Christians. But nevertheless, they believe there's somebody home upstairs. How can we know that a creator, personal creator God exists? We can know. First fingerprint. Grab your yellow bulletin insert, if you would. And on there you'll have an outline of the three arguments that I'm going to share for the existence of God. The first one is there now. How can I know that it... Now, notice notice the emphasis on that, because this first discussion, this first argument does not tell you who God is. It would equally apply to the Muslims, it would apply to the Hindus, the Buddhists, as well as the Christians, because it only tells us there has to be an intelligence that stands behind the world. By observing the fingerprints of intelligent design in, and the word you want to add underneath the fingerprint there, is nature. In other words, the physical world, in the natural world, is your first one. If you go out to western South Dakota, and notice the National Monument there, has the faces of four former presidents of the United States. What are the odds that you could stand at the observation deck there on that place and convince people that are coming to look that these faces appeared on that granite mountain as a result of wind and water erosion over millions of years. Wouldn't your job be tough? Even the little kids would say, oh, come on, somebody did that. Yeah, exactly. Why? Because it's highly improbable. Secondly, it's highly specified. You can even recognize who it is. It's not just kind of faces. It's specific. Very, very detailed. When you have those, those things, you usually identify that they came about as a result of an intelligent cause. It's not law. It's not a chance event. It is the result of design. You would do the same thing if you were doing your clothes, your car, this church. You look around and say, come on, somebody did this. This is not the result of chance. This is too ordered, too specified, and too improbable to come about by chance. And the scripture here in Psalm chapter 19 is expressing that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Now notice, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. It doesn't matter if you live in Japan. It doesn't matter if you're in India. It doesn't matter if you're in South or North America. Everyone hears this voice. Why? Because you look around just like Mount Rushmore or your software program or whatever else it is, and you say, come on, this didn't happen by chance. And you say, there must be someone or something behind it. And that's why eight out of ten people tend to say, I think there must be a God. 
doesn't know, nature doesn't tell us who it is, just gives us the evidence. And that's what God intended. God did not intend that there should be any atheist because he wanted to leave his fingerprints all over the world for all to see. So they would then search for the second evidence that he left for us. Let me tell you a little bit about this nature, how, how we can see the fingerprints of God in that. If something is both complex and specified, you'll have a case for intelligent design. For example, you look at the letters, the white letters behind the word complex. Sure, they are a complex set of letters, uh, but they don't say anything. There's no specificity. There's no order to them. But if I took those same letters and I put them in a certain order, I took some and put them over here in this cluster, some in this cluster, and I arranged a bunch of clusters, and then I put the clusters in the right sequence, and I put the dot at the end of the last cluster, those same letters can do this. The complex is now specified. Same letters. Now you have a case that that came about. Even though I did it, you might question the intelligence behind it, but I did do that, and, and the result is you would suspect design, not chance, for that sentence. Complex, science knows this well, complex and specified information called in science CSI. Complex and specified information, when you get a high value for it, you must look for intelligence that stands behind it. That doesn't, gen it's not generated by chance. So we turn, I, I know, I'm a scientist, we're gonna use biological examples. Uh, we turn to the DNA molecule. The DNA molecule is the blueprint on which all the information is coded so that during the embryological process, it can give directions to the developmental process so that you end up with a baby or a camel, <laughs> not you, <laughs> or a rose. Every plant and every animal has a DNA code so that it can reproduce itself. That's highly specified, highly complex. The language of DNA is such that along that molecule, co that coiled molecule, you have letters, chemical letters. In fact, there are only four letters that make up all living things. Ever thought about that? God comes to you, there's nothing exists in the world. No plants, no animals. And he gives you four letters and said, create a million and a half species. With four letters? You have to be kidding. No. You can do it if you're God. <laughs> Why? Because those four letters are accumulated into little three-letter words. Only three-letter words. Those three-letter words are arranged in such a way that they form sentences of information. Those many thousands of sentences form what we call a gene. And genes represent the blueprint for every living thing that exists. It's ingenious. Now, our genome, that is, we have 46 chromosomes in each cell made up of that DNA molecule with the code in it. So the scientists decided they were going to look more carefully and more detailed at all of those 46 chromosomes and decipher how many letters there must be 
on those 46 chromosomes so you can get a baby. They came up with 3.1 billion letters it takes to guide the developmental process. Well, how many is that? That's so many, it's hard for us to grasp. So if I took the Bible, and you took yours, and we looked at it and said, okay, this time instead of reading it, let's count the letters. That's when you don't have anything much to do. So you go through the entire Old Testament, write the number of letters on each page, all the way through. Then you go through the whole New Testament, write the letters, number of letters on the bottom. Then you add them all up. How many letters do you think there'd be in the entire Bible? Less than 4 million. Less than 4 million. What are the odds, though, that those 4 million letters could possibly have come together in exactly the sequence we find it in 66 books of the Old Testament, 27 of the New, by chance? Wouldn't you say that's fairly absurd? No way chance could have generated this book, no matter how many letters you gave it. How would you like to be in our universities today, and you're a professor, but you're required to teach those smart students that the DNA molecule for a million, million and a half plant and animal species, that many blueprint codes came about by chance over time. That's what you have to teach. You're telling the students that the number of letters that you would find in 800 Bibles stacked on top of each other got in that sequence in order by chance. Does that not seem absurd? God left his fingerprints everywhere, whether you are an advanced student or you just simply want to watch a sunset. And you marvel and say, come on. I don't think this just happened by chance. Highly specified. Even Bill Gates, who I mean, we're using his software right now, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we've ever... Oh, they create software. I thought it evolved. They just close the door on the weekend, and they come back on Monday, and there it is. It's evolved on their computers. No, they have to hire intelligent men and women in order to come up with complex and specified information. As Bill Gates says, they create it because it doesn't happen by chance. It's simply too highly ordered. We call it information rich to have come about by chance. I'm going I'm to challenge you here a little bit. Uh, Albert Einstein, you know, just kind of an average person. Or you're fairly bright, huh? Showed uh, in a book he wrote, these equations you see on the right-hand side there, and all of us look at that calculus and so forth, and we say, oh, it's Greek to me. But Einstein's point is that those five equations summarize the order of the entire universe. And he said, how could it be? 
the universe can be explained and fit into mathematical equations if it came about as a result of chance. Chance does not lead to order. It leads to chaos. And that's exactly what he said when he's, uh, uh, in a moment. He said the most incomprehensible thing about the world, the world we live in, is that it is comprehensible. Think about that a moment. His, his scientific brethren challenged him on his statement, and he responded, you find it strange that I consider the comprehensibility of the world to the degree that we may speak of such comprehensibility as a miracle or as an eternal mystery? He goes on and explains, well, a priori, that is, starting with your assumption that it's all the result of chance, one should expect a chaotic world which cannot in, be in any way grasped through thought. He's exactly right. He's thought carefully. He's not a Christian. He was a Jewish man. But, but he never was an atheist. He said, you cannot study the universe and conclude that this is the result of chance. There has to be intelligence behind it. He never did come to faith in Jesus Christ which is our next evidence that we're going to look at. So the Bible confirms, and this is where I got without excuse. In Romans chapter 1, you'll want to use that as your, where I said on each one I'll have, the Bible confirms this. You'll want to write Romans 1, 18 through 20. What I just taught you about the fingerprints of God in nature I could have simply started with Scripture and it would have told me that. But I wanted you to see the evidence that points out how Scripture is absolutely correct. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, being understood through what has been made, that is, the creation, nature, so that they are without excuse. The word is apologia. They have no reason, they have no evidence, they have no support for the position that they are taking. God has given them evidence all over the world that this is the result of design, not the result of chance. So everyone should know that a God exists. How do you find out who it is? Can we know who God is? Yes. By observing God's fingerprints are, are revealed in history. Number two, on your sheet. How can I know who the personal creator God is? By identifying God's fingerprints which are revealed in history. Let's talk about that just a little bit. Almost, I mean, uh, no, not almost. All of the religions of the world maintain that God is not knowable. And it's a major problem of all religions that God continues to be abstract. He's invisible. He's intangible. He's elusive. Therefore, you can't know who it is. You can only know he's there, but he's completely invisible and so forth. Christianity instead, however, not our idea, but we are the recipients of this understanding that if we use the triangle to represent the universe, the world, you can see the, the, the soil, the plants, the animals, and so forth, and people. 
And the circle represents God. All the religions of the world say, in the triangle, all you ever get is what you see there. Dirt, plants, animals, and people. And the circle will be, is forever invisible in space somewhere. Christianity is different. Christianity maintains that the circle came into our triangle. And he's no longer invisible, no longer intangible or elusive. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, verse 14 of John chapter 1, became flesh and lived with us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The angel's announcement was the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, and you know what it means. Matthew chapter 1 tells us, God with us. So that Christians understand that the whole idea that God is abstract, invisible, intangible, was changed in history about 2,000 years ago. God came into the world he created. And that's what we just celebrated, right? We just got done with Christmas. And that's what it's all about. That one of the two most significant events that have ever occurred in the history of planet Earth. When God became flesh and lived with us, therefore he was no longer invisible and we could know who God is. What's the other most significant event that's ever occurred in the history of planet Earth? The resurrection, Easter. We celebrate them in two major festivals, two major celebrations of our calendar. When God became flesh and lived with us and when God died to take away our sins because every other religion has another problem, the holiness of God. We are sinful. God is so holy that there is a gap between the two that could never be reconciled. I'll show you in a few minutes how God did that. So is God's identity knowable? Yes, in eyewitness history. And I've already quoted there, John 1.14. However, notice that John in verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. He acknowledges what all the other religions do until God came into history. He has made him known. Apostle John's excitement, of course, when he wrote his first epistle, 1 John, he starts it out, in the verse, first three verses, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. Translate, from eternity. Whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Notice the senses. We heard him, we saw him, and we touched him. No phantom. No ghost. A man came into history about 2,000 years ago. The evidence for his life demonstrates that he is indeed God in the flesh. But many people would say, but I don't believe that stuff. Uh, the Bible? 
That's just a book written by people like any other book. It's not special. Uh, that's not God's word. Well, if you look at the evidence for the Bible, you find that that's not what the evidence suggests and presents to us, if we're familiar with that. For example, in the origin of the New Testament, I uh, wanted you to just see a timeline here. In 30 AD, we have like the resurrection up that some think it's 33, but we'll just stay with 30 right now. In 30 AD, we have Jesus' resurrection. Up until about 100 AD is what we call the eyewitness time period. By 100 AD, everyone who knew and was with Jesus is probably dead. What we maintain is that the Gospels relating to the history of Jesus, as well as the epistles and so forth, all arose by people who were with him and were written in that eyewitness time period. This is not legendary material that arose 100 years, 200 years, 300 years later, which, of course, is known not to be trustworthy. But eyewitness sources, how do we know? Well, because there are gobs and gobs of writings that start around 160 into the end of the 2nd century and on into the 3rd century, 4th century, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Ever heard of it? The Gospel of Jude. The Gospel of Philip. The Gospel of Thomas. All kinds of Gospels besides the ones that we find in the Bible. Why aren't they in the Bible? Because they're not eyewitnesses. Oh, you say, but Philip was an eyewitness. Thomas was an eyewitness. Except that Philip and Thomas didn't write those Gospels. If they arose, and we have evidence that they didn't arise until 160 to 200, and even up to 225, Thomas and Mary Magdalene and Philip were dead 100 years already. Somebody else at that time decided to look at the Gospels that were already in existence in the first century, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they noticed that Mary Magdalene was a close associate of Jesus, but she didn't publish anything. So they did it for her. It's called pseudonymous literature. Pseudo-false. Ascribed authorship. And so they'd 100 years, 200 years later, they would write something, usually with a Sinister motive. They have a different theology that they want to perpetuate. And they want Jesus' authority for it. So they'll write a gospel of Mary Magdalene, a gospel of Philip, a gospel of Thomas. Put their theology, have Jesus saying things that support what they believe, and then put Mary's name on it. Put Philip's name on it. All you get is lies. You don't want those. You want writings that are in the first century when not only they were eyewitnesses, but they're also teaching that in front of their enemies who are also alive and would very much love to put you down. And say, my uncle was there. Jesus never did that. So you can't get away with lying when you're doing it in the eyewitness generation. We find fragments of the Gospel of John already in 120 to 125 AD. There's also quoting by the church fathers that are from about the 
last decade of the first century into the early couple uh, decades of the 20th century. And we have gospel manuscripts that are now being found that are being dated into the first century. What that means is, if in fact we can find, even if it's fragments of written material for the Gospels already late in the first century or early in the second century, and there's gobs of them, that means that they must have been written even earlier than that. Because keep in mind, to get a copy to somebody, you have to do it this way. Handwritten. Therefore, books were scarce, and it takes a long time to get multiple copies. And so if they're already being distributed by the end of the first century, they must have been written completely earlier than that, and that's exactly what the evidence of, of, the, of uh, the writings uh, or the archaeological studies are indicating. So eyewitnesses, we can be assured, wrote the material we're looking at. What about, well, but, but the, I know, they were changed over the years. Keep in mind, they had to be hand copied. The printing press wasn't until the, what, 14th century, 15th century. So between Jesus and the printing press, they had to do hand copying. Of course, everybody knows how many mistakes you make during that time. Here's the thing. If you had, for example, I, I use there Julius Caesar, uh, the, uh, the, the Roman wars uh, that he wrote, the Gallic wars and so forth, uh, wrote it in 50 B.C., 50 years before Christ. But it has to be hand-copied, 100 A.D., 200 A.D., 300 A.D., all the way up to the printing press in the 15th century. They make a lot of mistakes, huh? During that time, well, maybe they do. But that's the challenge. That's what the critics are saying. You have to have, to, to have a, a lot of reliability, you have to have a lot of manuscripts. The more manuscripts you have, the more you can compare, and the more likely you would be able to detect if a scribe did make a mistake. And so the result, when you reconstruct it, by the way, I forgot to tell you, we don't have any originals. We don't have Aristotle, Plato, Josephus, Old Testament, New Testament, the Muslim Bible text. We don't have any of those originals. All we have are scribal copies. And so we have to reconstruct the original from the scribal copies. The more copies you have, the more confident you can be that you're reconstructing the original with great trustworthiness. On the screen you see a few things, like the largest number of manuscripts that have ever been found is for Homer's Iliad, 1,757, wow. Of course, Caesar, the Gallic Wars is 251. Did I choose little ones? No. What you see on the screen are the are the ones with the greatest amount of textual manuscript evidence for them. Therefore, they are the ones that could be used for reconstructing their original with the greatest confidence. But why did I make them so tiny? Well, because I had to put the New Testament on there. 
over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament between the first century and the printing press. All handwritten copies. Which of the ones on the screen do you think could be reconstructed the original with the greatest confidence? Well, the one with the most manuscripts, which of course is the New Testament. By the way, this information should be in every class on literature. It's not religious. We're not converting anybody. We're just educating them to the lost evidence because it's the Bible that most people say you wouldn't want to trust. But in fact, literary-wise, the Bible has the greatest evidence for trust than any other document ever written by humankind in ancient times. Let's take this one again, Julius Caesar. We also want to know how early they are. Because the closer you get to the original with a copy, the less likelihood that there's been time for any errors or much of any errors to have crept into the text during the copying process. So earlier is better. Julius Caesar, remember I said 251 for the Gallic Wars? The oldest one is 900 A.D. In other words, there's 950 years between when he wrote and the first surviving manuscript that's ever been found. Is that enough time for anybody to make some changes in there? I think so, but nobody questions Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. It's read in colleges and schools around America and around the world, but hardly ever a question raised about his trustworthiness. Or what about Aristotle wrote the, the poetics? He wrote it back in the 4th century before Christ. There are no manuscripts until 1100 A.D. It was copied for over 1400 years without any way for us to know what might have happened to the text during those 1400 years because there are no manuscripts. But nobody's questioning Aristotle's poetics. Virgil is the best you can find from ancient literature, and that is he wrote about the same time as Julius Caesar, 50 B.C., and when you get to about 300, you can do a, find a manuscript for his work. So a gap of maybe 300 years is about as good as it gets between the authorship and the first manuscript that's been found. The New Testament was written between 45 and 100 A.D. in the first century. I already showed you that the manuscripts are a very large number, over 24,000. But now notice that the manuscripts that are being found already start in the first century. The amount of time between the authorship and the first manuscripts are so small, virtually negligent, meaningless. Well, then, but they had to copy it for centuries before it got to the printing press. I bet they changed it then. Oh, really? Yeah, I suppose. You can go to any century you want, and you can find New Testament manuscripts in those centuries. And you want to go to places where these are kept? Check it out. Take your Bible along. So you can check it out against the 3rd century manuscript, the 5th century, the 10th century. They got transmitted all the way from the 1st century to the printing press with virtually no substantial changes of any kind. 
so that what I hold in my hand this morning is what the apostles wrote in the first century over 2,000 years ago. I have confidence that that's the case. So there was eyewitness sources. They're transmitted without any significant change. But maybe it's not history. Maybe it's all make-believe. It's legend material. Oh, so then you turn to archaeology as a basis for evidence. And you go and begin to look at the discoveries that are being made. And here's a case where the cover of Biblical Archaeology Review, and that's the coastline of the Mediterranean, and that's Caesarea Maritima, an ancient city on the coastline of Judea. They found this stone there. And the stone has engraved on it the names of Pontius Pilate and the name of Tiberius, who was the emperor, according to the stone. You go to Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. We're not talking about fiction here. We're not talking about legendary material. We're talking about history. All the way through what archaeology has done for us is given us incredible basis of support for the historicity of the New Testament as opposed to legend or myth. The people in the Bible are real. Uh, this is a sermon. Uh, if you want to come to my three-hour seminar, I can give you more examples, okay? But this morning, I'm sure you're very glad that I'm not going to go on for three hours. Uh, close, but not quite. They, they are also finding bone boxes, all called ossuaries. They had secondary burial. Someone dies, they wrap them in spices and so forth, put a cloth around them, put them in a cave. A year later, they come back. All the water's gone. It's been absorbed and, and evaporated. All you have left is the skeleton with a parchment skin tightly uh, to it, dried. And then they take the bones apart, the skeleton. Now you've got a pile of bones, and you put them in this box called a bone box, an ossuary, and put the name of the individual on the end of the box. That's that individual. And they put the box back in the cave, and this is the cave for all your family. This is your cemetery. You line the boxes up along the wall of the cave. They found this one when they were doing road construction just south of the Temple Mount. And uh, it, 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 I, I can't go into detail. i got to hurry. Um, but they wondered who this could be. Well, fortunately, can you see the little carving on the end of the box? If you read Hebrew, you could read that. The name on the end of the box is Joseph Caiaphas. Remember him? He was the high priest who presided over the trial of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. The burial cave for the Caiaphas family has been found by archaeologists. A couple of sons, excuse me, one son and two daughters were in there with his box. Once again, the truthfulness of the history of the New Testament. The people in the Bible are real. Well, what about the places? Why do people pay to go to Israel? To the Holy Land, because many of the things that were present in the New Testament are still there, and they want to see that. For example, you go to Capernaum, up in Galilee, 
There's a, still a synagogue there. The white arrow points to the floor of the synagogue that was there at the time of Jesus. It's been built on top of since then, but that's the floor of the original synagogue in Capernaum. And when Scripture says these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, that's historically valid, historically true. Archaeology has confirmed the reality of that. So not only the people, but the places can be confirmed. What about the events? The crucifixion of Jesus has been challenged. They couldn't possibly have nailed Jesus to the cross because the Romans didn't use nails until late in the second century. This is 30, this is early in the first century. Impossible. They tied people. Therefore, the people who wrote that about Jesus' crucifixion could not have been eyewitnesses or they'd have known better than to have him nailed. Remember Thomas? Unless I see the nail prints in his hands, I will not believe. The New Testament says he was nailed until they found a crucifixion victim in another bone box in Jerusalem. The bones were still there and the nail was still there. The head of the nail on the left goes through and the nail comes out the other side of the feet and ankle bones. And when they analyzed when this crucifixion took place, between 25 and 42 A.D., Jesus was crucified about 30, right during that time period. The critics were wrong. The Romans did use nails earlier than they thought. And the gospel writers are vindicated as telling us actual history. So the events are real. Clearly, the gospels are historically reliable. Now, this is very, very brief, but there's your second passage of Scripture for your your outline. Down under number two, the Bible confirms this. You want to write down 2 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Archaeologists confirm that Peter is telling the truth. Now, yes, we believe that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm not challenging that. I believe that with all my heart. But when I'm as an evangelist, I'm going out and talking to atheists. I'm going out and talking to people who say, I don't believe any of this stuff. And I use the external evidence to get through to them. I'm not talking about fairy tales. Here's the evidence. What are you going to do with this evidence, which is totally consistent with what we say about the Bible? Well, lastly, then we need to conclude quickly here. Uh, Once you have a reliable history, Now you can turn to that and use it to explore the person of Jesus who was here 2,000 years ago. And in there we find out he claimed to be the Messiah, he claimed to be the Lord God, he claimed to be the I Am, which is the name of God, he claimed to be one with the Father, he gives eternal life, he has all authority in heaven and earth. Why would you believe a guy who says things like that? Because in his ministry he demonstrated he had authority and power over sin, which only God could do, that's their own declaration. He had authority over death, which no ism, no religion, nobody anywhere has ever been able to solve the death problem. Only Jesus demonstrated by his resurrection that he has authority and power over death. 
over the laws of nature. As a biologist, I know that these are things I can't touch. I can't do anything about them. They are what they are. Jesus is not limited to the laws. He's the lawmaker. Spirits fled at his word. That's why they said this is not an ordinary man. He must be more than that. So, the third evidence, and, and this is a short one. Look around the auditorium. If people came in here who did not believe in God, and they spent the next month with everybody here, would they be convinced that God must exist? Unfortunately, that's what the Scripture puts on us. We are the only evidence that some people will ever see of the truthfulness of God. So the third one you want to put there on the sheet is the by experiencing God's fingerprints, which are revealed in the transformation of my life. He himself bore, his, bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sin, live to righteousness, for by his wounds you and I were healed. This is the world on the bottom. It's sinful. It's got death sentence upon it. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But God is holy. God is just. He can't just wink and say, oh, you guys are so cute. I'm just going to let you go. No, I would violate his justice. So the only way he could do it is do a kinsman redemption. The Old Testament teaches us of the concept of goel. That, but that is a redemption. But it is only at the hands of a relative. But God's not a relative. How can he die for us? As he said in the Old Testament, I will redeem you. Only this way. If he came as a man without sin, he could then implement a kinsman redemption. A man who without sin could die for us who are with sin. You see, he was holy. We're sinful. All have sinned. But he said, I'll take your sin and I'll give you my holiness. He has life eternal. We have death. He said, but I'll, I'll take your death and I'll give you life eternal. It's called a substitutionary atonement. How can you turn away from something so gracious, so wonderful, so free? There's your third and last passage of Scripture to, dem to, for, to remember the three points. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has come, has gone. The new has come. Down there under that, the Bible confirms that. Will you yield right now to God if you have never done so? The evidence is abundant. And I just invite, I, I can't coerce. You alone have to Yield to the Spirit of God and say, yes, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I want to follow you in my life.
take a look at that. I'll just read through it. And if you have never come to the place where you've affirmed your sin, you're sorry for that, and you'd like to affirm Jesus through faith, then in your own heart, silently, you're going through this prayer with me. Thank you for the evidence of your fingerprints in the creation and in history. And thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me as my Savior. I'm sorry for my sins. I pray that you'll forgive me. I want your fingerprints on me to transform my life as a testimony to you in the world. Thank you for your love and the gift of eternal life. There's been a response form put in the bulletin, and it's uh, just so helpful for my wife and I uh, to be able to read your response. In the middle of the response, it says, today I prayed with you to begin trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord of my life. If that's true, then that would be for you. Most of you here, however, are the second one. Today I'm reaffirming my faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord of my life. Been there, done that. (laughs) But nevertheless, it's okay. To reaffirm that, and then third, if there's someone here who says, boy, interesting, but I'm not ready. I just can't do that yet. Then what? No, I'm not yet ready. But please, give somebody, not to bug you, a chance to be able to be in touch with you by writing on an email or a phone number or something so that someone could call. Folks, if you say no, Don't forget, this is eternity. You don't want to go there without Jesus Christ. Do it today. If you would, write a comment. What has this message meant? Did you learn anything? Uh, If it's negative, don't bother. But if (laughs) if it's positive, go ahead, write all you want. Turn it on the back and write some more if you'd like. Uh, But thank you. By the way, for those of you that would like, I'm, I'm, I'm done, but there's a DVD on the table called Why I Believe in God Is the, are these three points in a more elaborate, it's, it's about an hour and 15 minutes rather than what I gave to you. So it is available if you know somebody that's questioning their faith or questioning God for 10 bucks. You can pass this around and have people confronted with the evidence And then, of course, my book, Surprised by Faith. Been around for years. This is a new third edition, and it has all the evidence in printed form. Lord, thank you for our time together. I thank you for the power of your spirit. Guide us now in our response. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Don. Let's give him a nice thank you.